Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll continue my conversation with experts about U.S. overseas military basing. Susanna Bloom, Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Program at the Center for New American Security, Zach Cooper, Research Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Dave Achmanek, Senior International and Defense Researcher at the RAND Corporation. So I want to get in now to the costing elements of posture. If you're a taxpayer in America, how you ought to be thinking about what you get out of this force that we have overseas. And there's a really interesting piece that came in War in the Rocks from Rick Berger. And he did some costing analysis that showed if you just take those major force concentrations the U.S. has in Germany, Japan, and South Korea, costs about $15 billion. About $4 billion of that is covered by those allies. So you're talking, if these numbers are right, about $11 billion cost to have that presence overseas. But at the same time, he points out, Rick points out, that it would cost you about $2 billion to bring those same forces home and the construction that you'd have to do once you got them home. So that $2 billion is their plane ticket, if you will, to say it simplistically, is another 8 to $10 billion, meaning you are either roughly equal, saving no money, or roughly in the negative zone. So that's hard, I think, for most Americans to really understand because they mostly think about the costs of forces overseas and not, as you all have um, said very clearly on the prior podcast, about the fact that if, as long as the structure exists, the way to think about posture is more about the marginal cost and then the utility piece. So, Zach, let me have you make your best pitch around how an American taxpayer might think positively about having U.S. forces right now in South Korea. Sure. The question isn't whether you want to have 28,500 mostly soldiers in South Korea or whether you want them in the United States. The question is whether you want to have 28,500 soldiers in Korea or maybe 40,000 or 50,000 in the United States. Because for a couple of reasons, they do a lot more in Korea for our strategic interests than they might back home wherever they would be uh, in the continental United States. For one, they're a constant presence that you don't have to rotate through that is there both to deter adversaries and to reassure our allies. Second, they're actually in Korea, so they know how to operate with Korean forces and they have trust and they build relationships. And third, and I think potentially this is maybe the most important point, you need fewer forces forward often than you would need at home to generate that combat power. And so both Dave and Susanna and and yourself, Kath, have talked about the need to fight early on in a conflict and do so effectively. Well, uh, if you're going to flow in forces to Korea over weeks or months in a fight, the other side is going to have gone pretty far down the peninsula before you get there. And you're going to have to flow in a lot more forces, which means you're going to have a bigger force structure. So the trade-off- war and more casualties. Exactly. It's over. So, so I actually think the question for a lot of American taxpayers is, why isn't more of the force forward? 
I like the way you think, Zach, but uh, I don't want to stack the deck too much here. Um, Susanna, pick up maybe on just the piece of this that is what we often will, will jokingly call Navy math, which is the structure implications, um, which which Rick Berger isn't trying to pick up in his costing. But there are, picking up what Zach said, there are some implications if you keep more of the force home but end up needing it abroad. So the kind of shorthand for this inside the department is three to make one, right? If you decide that you need an Aegis-equipped DDG, you know, in the Sea of Japan to do missile defense missions at all times, you can either base it there at which case you get a 1.0 presence, actually a little bit less because you got to do maintenance sometimes, but close. Whereas if you wanted to achieve that same presence with forces that were based in the United States, you'd need at least three ships to do that in order to kind of cover the uh, cycle of getting ready to deploy, deployed, recovering from deployment. And, uh, you know, for different kinds of units, the math works out a little bit differently. Three to make one is like a good kind of shorthand or heuristic. But you know, what Zach says is absolutely correct, that if you wanted to achieve the same presence from forces based in the United States, uh, you need a lot more force structure to do that. So, Dave, in, in Europe, we've sort of run those exercises over the course of the Cold War. Of course, we had forces forward, but we imagined a very large force having to come from the United States. Would a model like that even be, could it be operationally effective today? It could be. It's a question of balance, like everything else. Um, and there's no general rule of thumb here. You have to look again and again at what your adversary can bring to bear and how fast, and that will dictate how much time you have to bring an adequate amount of combat power to bear in the defense. And again, we're about a third of the way toward having what looks like uh, an adequate footprint of ground combat power on the eastern flank of the alliance vis-a-vis what Russia can bring today. So more troops in being in place is the remedy there. Well, let's talk a little bit about burden sharing because that's such a big issue. It's long been an issue. As a matter of fact, after the Cold War, it was mostly an issue among Democrats on the left who wanted to get the peace dividend. Today, it's something President Trump talks quite a lot about in very colorful language. But in between those two periods of time, it's always been a tension point. Um What's fair to be asking of these allies and partners who are hosting U.S. forces, and how are they doing in terms of meeting what we think should be fair? Well, I think it depends on the ally, and it depends why we're there. I guess I would just say as a, start, a point of departure, you know, cost plus 50 is probably not fair. But, you know, the uh, discussion of, of uh, our NATO allies needing to contribute more to collective defense, you know, dates back long before President Trump took office uh, and, and for good reason. You know, so if we take that as an example, it is a collective defense problem. You know, the U.S. is in Europe for our own purposes and interests as well, but we're also there to protect our European allies. And as a result, they should be investing more in their own military capabilities, strengthening the alliance as a whole and its ability to respond to a contingency involving Russia or, or other bad actors. The story in Asia is a bit different. Both the Japanese and the Koreans contribute substantially uh, in terms of direct dollars and cents payments on the theory that you know U.S. presence in Japan, for example, allows the Japanese to invest less in their own uh, military capabilities. I think actually where this discussion often begins is the wrong starting point. The question to me isn't what should they be paying 
And that's the question President Trump often asks. What, you know, he thinks there's a check that they write to, I don't know, the U.S. Treasury or something of that sort, and that that should cover all U.S. forces. I actually agree with the president that I don't think our allies and partners do enough. I just think what they should be doing is building their own capabilities, not paying us money. How much do we really get from the South Koreans paying us $800 million a year? Does that add substantial amounts of combat power to American forces? I don't think so. It's a huge political issue in Korea. And the fact that we're asking them for $5 billion now is going to threaten the alliance. Mm -hmm. But if we got an extra $4 billion a year from Korea, would it fundamentally change our capabilities? No. I think the problem we have in Asia is we need more capability in both of our major Northeast Asian alliances. We should be asking our allies to do more themselves with us in terms of capabilities, not to pay more in terms of the um, amount that they write a check to the United States government every year. And this is actually what NATO has been trying to pivot to rhetorically. I'm not sure how far they're getting in terms of actual capability, but this is where the NATO readiness initiative that was announced at the last summit has really kind of tried to shift the conversation from dollars to capabilities on the ground. Dave, how are we doing with our European allies? I, I'm not no, that's up to fine. date on that. It is a lot easier to measure the amount of a check written to you than it is to assess the efficacy of spending on readiness on forces or aggregate defense budgets. Do you, so have forth. you guys done any assessment on the areas where European contributions would be valuable? Yes, and it's in the same capability areas that we keep emphasizing from our game. So having over the medium term, United Kingdom, France, and Germany be able to provide a ready brigade uh, on the eastern flank of the alliance within seven to 10 days would be terrific. Bringing up the readiness of the so-called very high readiness multinational brigade within uh, Europe so that it could be available on seven days versus 30 days notice would be a substantial contribution as well. And again, anti-armor munitions, cruise missile defense, uh, UAVs for, for, uh, for surveillance and reconnaissance, uh, prosaic things like unattended ground sensors on the borders of the Baltics, special operations forces, jam-resistant communications. All of our warfighters know the, the tools they need to do the job. Again, none of these are really high-tech things that are beyond the reach of, of certainly our, our most, most uh, advanced allies. One of the other ways we see the cost conversation come about is around the readiness trade-offs that are being made or the discussion is, are they being made in order to keep up these different descriptions the department's been using over their time? Is this what it's really about? I think absolutely, to in some part at least, that's what it's about. I think the tricky thing is that the relationship between readiness and presence is complicated even readiness and posture, it's complicated. I, th I think, for example, there is excellent ground forces training available in Europe. If you send a unit to Europe, sometimes that unit's readiness metrics can actually go up, right? Because they have access to this kind of high-end um, combined arms training. You know, on the other hand, because of, you know, airspace restrictions, limitations in Asia, if you send you know, a fighter squadron to Asia, its readiness is going to go down over the duration of that deployment, right? And so it really depends on the kind of unit and where it's going, whether a stint overseas is good for its readiness or bad for its readiness. There's one example that I point to a lot, and that is if we look back at the USS McCain and USS Fitzgerald ship collisions. 
you know, obviously the underlying factors behind those two terrible tragedies were myriad and complicated and, and interlocking. But, you know, one thing that I see when I look at those two incidents is a Navy that had burned through all of its readiness in the steady state or whatever we're calling it, peacetime, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, kind of presence type missions um, and had nothing left in the tank when asked to surge just a little bit in response to provocative activity from North Korea. And and the results, as I say, were absolutely tragic. And so, you know, I think the department absolutely has to get a better grip on what those trade-offs are in order to make better decisions about the way that we position our forces around the world. So there are lots of different ways the U.S. uses these forces. Some ways we use them are more expensive than others. And there's always been this debate in the department over whether using the forces that we have for missions that are really in support of foreign policy goals versus for warfighting purposes has value. Susanna, what's your view on that? Yeah, I I will admit to being a little bit conflicted on this question because on the one hand, I I think it is not – the most effective use of military forces to do very small, kind of not operationally important to U.S. interests type of, like, for example, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief exercises in certain countries. It's it's costly. It It is a drain on readiness, as we have just discussed. And it, it doesn't uh, really move the needle when it comes to deterrence or sending sending a message to our adversaries you know, that we are we are serious and kind of combat credible. You know, on the other hand, there are some instances where that kind of exercise is is the only way to build a partnership with certain countries. You know, in, in cases where that's really true, then, you know, maybe it is worth it. Uh, but I think it's probably not worth it as often as we do it. So, Zach, that makes me think, for instance, of Southeast Asia, where it's really difficult for them to collaborate with, exercise with the United States, both in terms of their capabilities and in terms of their domestic and regional challenges on issues that more directly relate to China, but where we've used things like humanitarian assistance and disaster relief as a way to, or maritime domain awareness. You know, what's the value we should take from that? Yeah, I think absolutely. Just as Susanna said, those kinds of ties help us build relationships. And if we're trying to build a relationship with a certain country, it can often be very difficult to start with a carrier visit or even a visit from aircraft or destroyers. It can be much easier to start off with HADR and build from there. Uh, so I do think there's there's a role for those kinds of missions. But as Susanna said, we no longer have the luxury of doing everything we want to do. We're going to have to make some really tough choices. And I think at times those kinds of relationships are going to make sense uh, and those kinds of uh, exercises and trainings, but uh, not everywhere and not all the time. Yeah. So, for example, you know, in a, in a case with a country where building that kind of military to military relationship is not as critical to our kind of operational or warfighting interests, you know, wouldn't it be better if, you know, we could like the CDC could do more on like pandemic preparation, mm. right, as opposed to doing a, you know, exercise with the Navy or the Marine Corps or whomever? You know, I think there definitely is room to explore that rebalancing of the face of of U.S. presence abroad. So I want to end by going once around. I'm going to start with you, Dave, and and just ask you, you know, January 2021, either you'll be at the beginning of the second term of the Trump administration or you'll have a new team in place in the White House and the Pentagon leadership. And as it relates to this topic, what's top of your list for the advice you want them to hear? 
Let me answer that question by posing yet another. What constitutes appropriate posture in regions where we face serious A2AD challenges will depend very much on the concept of operations that we eventually develop for projecting power into those regions. So, so the predicate to fixing posture in East Asia is coming up with a way to project combat power survivably and effectively into the contested zone from the outset of hostility. So I would accelerate the development and fielding of runway-independent air vehicles and inexpensive things that I can throw into the face of the enemy air defense and overwhelm it to create a targeting mesh so that the adversary can't move without being observed, those kinds of things. And as those mature, then we start changing out what we have in our forward posture. On Europe, some of those things about increasing uh, land combat power and anti-armor munitions, that's a fairly straightforward sort of set of things we could start doing right away. That's very consistent with actually the the way we approach this challenge on the Commission on the National Defense Strategy mm-hmm. where I served, which is it's yes, all about the operational concepts, yep. but we can't be immobile while we wait for that. Exactly so right. what can we do today? Zach? I would build on what Dave was saying and add that uh, I think for the last two decades, we've made small tweaks to our posture in Asia. And the Chinese have made huge, rapid strides both in their force structure and the advancement and capability of their forces to operate effectively and in their own posture, in fact, we have just not kept up. And that's not because each administration hasn't come in saying that they're going to make big changes in Asia, right? The Bush administration said it and then got diverted by 9-11. The Obama team came in with the rebalance and the pivot, uh, but we didn't see as much posture change as I would have hoped. And the Trump team came in and talked about great power competition, but is sending forces back to the Middle East. And so it reminds me a little bit of uh, the TV show Friends, where there's an episode where uh, they're trying to get a couch up some stairs and they just keep yelling, pivot, pivot, (laughs) pivot, and it never quite (laughs) happens. And I think that's kind of the American problem. I've been hearing my whole professional career that Asia is urgent and critical and important, and yet we just don't see much posture change. So if I was coming in with the next team, I would say, let's do a big posture review of what we would actually need in Asia to fight a major contingency against a rapidly growing Chinese force. And I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be today. So in addition to everything that Dave and Zach have just said about needing to position the joint force in order to fight the wars of the future as opposed to the wars of the past, I would make a push for, you know, whomever is in office on January 21st of 2021 to really develop a more sophisticated means of assessing this relationship between presence and readiness. Because I think doing so is essential both to optimizing the position of U.S. forces overseas as well as making sure that the force is healthy enough and ready enough in the event of a crisis. I would uh, accelerate the production of weapons for our bomber force. We have this marvelous force of 96 combat-coated bombers that can operate from well outside the enemy's missile range and bring lethality into the battle space, and it will run out of useful weapons to shoot within about two days of a conflict. That is an irrational allocation of resources. We can fix that. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining me today, and I hope folks will tune in for our next podcast. Thanks, Kath. Thanks, Kath. Thank you. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.